Welcome to the St Emlyn's Podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Rick Boddy. And this is part two of our Troponin special, where we're going to delve even deeper into this protein molecule and how it can help us in the emergency department. Now, as regular readers of the blog and the cardiological and ED literature will know, Rick is a world leader in investigation of high sensitivity troponin. And that's the topic we're going to tackle today. I've got a list of questions for him. I'm going to just sit here, ask him everything I hope that you all want to know, and I'm just going to let him go. So, Rick, are you ready? I'm ready. Thanks for that uh, rather overwhelming introduction. Let's start with, so high sensitivity troponin. Can we just start off by defining what we mean by a high sensitivity assay and a high sensitivity troponin? Yeah, so this is a probably the most important point to understand, isn't it? High sensitivity troponin, it sounds like high diagnostic sensitivity. And as we touched on last time, there's a big difference between analytical sensitivity, which is how low are the concentrations that the assay can detect, and diagnostic sensitivity, which is about how well does it perform in terms of diagnosing an acute myocardial infarction. High sensitivity troponin talks about analytical sensitivity. So with a high sensitivity troponin assay, we can detect much lower concentrations of troponin. With the previous generations of troponin assay, it wasn't uncommon for us to basically have patients who had undetectable troponin or positive troponins because the 99th percentile in a reference population the upper reference limit, for example, of the test, was set at the detection limit. So if you, if you had detectable levels, then it was abnormal. With a high sensitivity troponin test, we can achieve something rather marvellous in that we can detect troponin levels in apparently healthy individuals. In fact, to be labelled as a high sensitivity troponin assay, it has to be able to detect troponin levels in at least half of apparently healthy individuals. So that's the first criterion an assay needs to hit in order to be labelled as high sensitivity. So let's just go back to that one very briefly. What we're saying there is that everybody, normal people, have troponin that is detectable in their blood. So we are releasing troponin from our cardiac muscles, from our myocardium, all the time. The reason that we haven't picked it up before was in essence just because the analyzers we were using to measure it were not able to do it. They weren't able to see those molecules. That's exactly right, yes. And if probably we had the perfect technology that could detect any troponin level, probably we'd find that troponin levels are normally distributed in the population and that we all have a baseline level of troponin, but it varies depending on our state of health. So that's the first characteristic for a high analytical sensitivity troponin in that it has to be present in 50% of a normal population. Are there other factors as well that make a troponin highly sensitive? Yeah, there's one more criterion that you have to hit, and that's about precision. So precision is, as you might expect, about how precise the result is that you see when you get the lab report. When we get lab results, of course, it's not perfect. If we tested the same sample a number of times, we'd get slightly different results with any lab test. And we can quantify that level of variation with something called the coefficient of variation. So that tells us roughly how much we might expect a single result to vary if we retested that same sample with the same level of troponin in it. And what we said, what the experts said was an acceptable coefficient of variation for diagnosing an acute myocardial infarction was, was, uh, was 10%. So you need a coefficient of variation of less than 10% at the cutoff for acute myocardial infarction in order to diagnose uh, an acute MI. Unfortunately, the previous generations of assays didn't achieve that level of precision. High sensitivity assays now do, so they have a coefficient of variation of less than 10% at the cutoff. So this may be something that surprises people. We're doing diagnostic tests all the time, not just troponins, we're running full blood counts, white cell counts, amylases, we're doing liver function tests, 
U and E tests. Each of these tests have variation if you run them a certain number of times. So if, if somebody took blood from me right now and they measured my sodium level and they, they repeated that 10 times, they would get 10 different results. And the variation between those results could be quite wide, more than 10%. Yeah, that's right. And that's really important to understand. So for example, if you saw two sodium results from the same patient and one of them was 131 and the next one was 133, you could say, oh, it looks like the, the sodium is going up, it's heading in the, in the right direction. But actually it might not be, it might just be within the realms of what we call analytical variation. Already I can imagine people listening to this podcast, they're driving in their cars and they felt the need to pull over with this revelation that our testing isn't as accurate as we once thought it was. So we should just let them get their breath back before they restart their cars and restart their journey to work. But it is something that's really important to bear in mind. A number of times with other tests, we talk about the hemoglobin and people say, oh, the, the hemoglobin's changed by one gram. Actually, that one gram measurement could, it may not be, but that could just be due to the variation, the an analytical variation in the testing. Hopefully everyone's got their breath back. They've restarted their cars. They've pulled safely back onto the freeway, the motorway, the village lane. Let's get back to troponin. So the high sensitivity troponin, the high analytical sensitivity, the two things I think you said were, it needs to be detectable in 50% of normal people, normal people with no myocardial disease. And it also has to have a coefficient of variation where, which is less than 10%. So if you did repeated measurements on the same person, the same sample, it will never vary the result at the cutoff of more than 10%. Yes, and the 10%, roughly varying by 10% is a very rough figure. It's not quite as simple as that, but as a ballpark, it gives you the right idea. So now we understand a bit more about what it means to be a high sensitivity troponin, I guess we should move on a little bit now and talk about how we can use that difference in the emergency department. Let's just flick a little bit between analytical sensitivity and diagnostic sensitivity. Can we therefore say that a high sensitivity troponin has also got high diagnostic sensitivity? Because obviously ruling out disease is something that we're very interested in. Well, the two things are very different. So not necessarily. Just because you can detect lower concentrations doesn't mean you'll get a higher diagnostic sensitivity. So we have to do research to find out if there is higher diagnostic sensitivity. The research shows that actually high sensitivity assays do have a higher diagnostic sensitivity when we use them, for example, at the time of arrival in the emergency department for patients who have a suspected MI. Whereas the sensitivity of the older assays might be more like 80-85%, the sensitivity of a high sensitivity troponin assay is more like 90 or 92%. And this is because we can detect even smaller quantities of troponin and we know how much should be in a normal individual. There's actually a really interesting thing here. Unless, I mean, we, we, we can't avoid focusing in on individual assays just to, to make examples here. So let's focus in on the, the troponin T assay from Roche because I think that's quite widely used. It's a high sensitivity troponin T assay. The 99th percentile or the cutoff for that assay is 14 nanograms per litre. We can detect levels right down to 3 nanograms per litre. So being a high sensitivity assay, we've now got these levels between 3 and 14 that we can detect. And they're normal. The 99th percentile is still the 99th percentile. So if, you know, with the old one it was 10 nanograms per litre, now the 99th percentile is 14 nanograms per litre. That seems higher and that seems crazy, doesn't it? You know, you'd expect the high sensitivity assay to have a lower cutoff for diagnosing MI. And it's higher. So how does that work? Well, actually, what we find is... With a high sensitivity troponin assay, particularly troponin T, the apparent results that we get from the lab are higher than they used to be with the old troponin assays. So let's say we have the same sample. Let's say we tested this sample using the standard troponin T assay and we got the level back as 10 nanograms per litre. That's right at the cutoff, the 99th percentile. Now we re-measure it 
using the high sensitivity troponin TSA, what would the level be? You might say, well, it'll be 14 because that's the 99th percentile. In fact, it won't. The reading we get from the high sensitivity assay is even higher, about 35 nanograms per litre. And it's the same sample. So 35 nanograms per litre is the reading that you get with the high sensitivity assay, whereas 10 nanograms per litre was the reading you got with the previous generation of assay. What that means is you've got all of these extra positive results. Levels of between 10 and 35 using the old assay that were previously normal and are now abnormal above the cutoff. So you get more positives. When you're getting more positives, you're effectively, what you're effectively doing is you've lowered the diagnostic threshold. And when you lower the diagnostic threshold, you get a higher diagnostic sensitivity at the expense of specificity. So with each of these tests, it's always a balance from a diagnostic point of view between sensitivity and specificity. Now, by chance, the high sensitivity analytical sensitivity troponin, I think we're really using to focus in on early rule outs. So our diagnostic sensitivity is what's important. Do we have to have a big compromise with specificity and sensitivity? We said in our last episode that if you've got a positive troponin at patient arrival, then that was about 90% specific. Where are we with specificity for the first sample using a high sensitivity troponin? So specificity is much lower. Again, it varies a little bit with the assays. And so, uh, the Abbott troponin I assay seems to be a bit more specific than the Roche troponin T assay, just using a single measurement on arrival. But the specificity, let's say we talked about the Roche assay, the troponin T assay. Let's, look, let's talk about that. The specificity of that is much lower. I think it's around about 70%. Sometimes it's a little bit more easy to understand that as a positive predictive value. As I mentioned briefly in the last podcast, if you've got a patient with suspected cardiac chest pain, a positive high sensitivity troponin, the poster probability or the positive predictive value of that is only 50%. So only half of those patients with a positive troponin are having an acute myocardial infarction. It is important to appreciate that when we use troponin on arrival in the emergency department, a positive result doesn't necessarily mean that the patient's having an acute MI. And a negative troponin on arrival doesn't necessarily mean that the patient can be ruled out. So we take into account the pretest probability. Now we said in the last podcast that troponin is used as a reference standard for myocardial infarction. Can we use high sensitivity troponin in the same way as a reference standard for myocardial infarction? The universal definition of myocardial infarction states that you need a rise and or fall of troponin to above the 99th percentile. First of all, just taking the troponin result, if you've got a troponin of 15 and you developed a rise and or fall of the troponin, then you potentially are eligible for a diagnosis of an acute myocardial infarction. And yes, you could use that high sensitivity troponin as a reference standard. In fact, it's going to be a more sensitive reference standard than the previous generation assays because we'll be able to diagnose acute myocardial infarctions that we were never able to diagnose before. In fact, the apparent incidence of acute myocardial infarction will go up by about a third using high sensitivity assays. You don't just need the troponin though. So to diagnose an acute myocardial infarction, you need the rise and or fall of troponin, but you need the correct clinical context as well. And that's a really important point to, to hammer home really. So Rick, we've got this high analytical sensitivity test We've got this high diagnostic sensitivity test. This all sounds great. We're getting newer technology that measures ever lower levels of troponin. Is there a way in which we can incorporate this into our clinical work 
that may help us both facilitate patients through the emergency department quicker, but also make us more accurate in our diagnosis? Yeah, and I think that's the key question, isn't it? It's all very well saying that the, the sensitivity of these neutroponin tests on arrival is slightly higher than the previous generation assays, but it can't rule you out, and nor does it rule you in. So what we want to know as emergency physicians is how does this actually help us, and how does it change what we do? How can we change our protocols to accommodate high sensitivity troponin assays? The most attractive thing potentially about high sensitivity troponin is you can bring forward the time at which you rule out an acute myocardial infarction using serial sampling. So there's been lots of talk about doing troponins three hours after arrival instead of waiting for six hours after arrival. Can you do that? Well, there's some good evidence to suggest that you might be able to do that. The best is uh, using the Abbott High Sensitivity Troponin Eye Assay, a paper published in JAMA by uh, Muller's group, suggested that the Abbott High Sensitivity Troponin Eye Assay had a sensitivity of 98.1% for acute myocardial infarction when tested at zero and three hours. So it's not bad, it's not perfect, but it's not bad. Uh, And there's a little bit of limited evidence that you can do the same thing with the Roche assay as well. There was an abstract published in Circulation that suggested that it has a quite high diagnostic sensitivity if you do troponins at zero and three hours. And potentially, that's how it will really help us in the emergency department. So we're able to bring forward that second test. Instead of waiting either six hours after arrival, or as we do in the UK, 10 hours, 12 hours after the onset of pain, we can bring our testing forward, get the patients through the department quicker, and be reassured that we're sending them home safely without them having myocardial damage. Yeah, and that's a potential attraction of high sensitivity deponents. I think it's still early days. We're still in the process of revising our protocols and seeing how it goes. There's a real challenge in doing a zero and three hour troponin, interpreting the results and letting patients go home safely within the four hour emergency department journey. It may not be feasible, we'll wait and see. And we've described before, and uh, Simon's talked about in the past, and he talked about at SMAC last year, this idea of early adopters and change. Are you an earlier adopter? You are surely at the forefront of troponin testing. Are you going to be moving towards a high sensitivity troponin? Have you got some sort of protocol that you would be using? I really enjoyed Simon's talk at SMAC Gold about, you know, when to change, because that's a really key question. Um, I, I do think it's important that we are open to being early adopters if the evidence is sufficient to make the change. The question is, is the evidence sufficient to make the change in this regard? I'm a little bit limited by what I can say because I'm I'm working with NICE on the recommendations for the use of high sensitivity troponin in practice and that won't publish until uh, October. But most people will have probably seen the draft guidance on the website which suggests that we might be moving towards a zero and three hour troponin. So we've got these protocols that are being developed. I know there's different groups publishing different ideas. Everybody needs this. The emergency departments throughout the UK and worldwide are pressurised with too many patients, too much to do. This is hugely attractive. People like yourself are working very hard to find a safe way that we can use these. If we just think a little bit, we've talked about a zero and three hour protocol. Now, other protocols also involve deltas. Can you just explain a little bit about what deltas are? Yeah, so what's really important when we're interpreting troponin levels is that we don't just take account of a single value we need to know whether the level's rising or falling. Because if in the universal definition of acute myocardial infarction that I mentioned before, you have to have a rise and or fall of troponin. The big question is what is a rise and or fall of troponin? How much change does it have to be? And the answer will be different for the different troponin assays. So again, you've got to know which assay your lab is using. Traditionally, we always said that a 20% change between the, between the test results is significant and can be uh, consistent with an acute myocardial infarction. When you look at where the evidence for that came from, there isn't any. I can't find any. It seems to have been arbitrary based on the analytical characteristics of the tests. 
Uh, and there are some potential drawbacks to using that 20% delta. It's a relative change. So 20% is a relative delta. What we mean is we need the first level to change by 20% in order to, to label it as significant. Imagine what that means. So if you had a patient who started off with a uh, high sensitivity troponin T level of 10 or 11 nanograms per litre, and it goes up to 15 nanograms per litre. Well, that's more than a 20% change. So we'd label them potentially as having had an acute myocardial infarction, but actually the absolute change is only four or five nanograms per litre. And that could easily be analytical variation. It could be that you've just tested the same sample twice and got different results because of the limitations of the test. On the other hand, you've got a patient who starts off with a troponin of 2000 nanograms per litre, massive troponin elevation, and then you retest it and it's gone up by 100 nanograms per litre to 2100 nanograms per litre. Well, that's pretty massive. I mean, that patient's had a huge MI, but they haven't got a 20% delta. It's only 5%. And they would be, we'd tell them that they haven't had an acute myocardial infarction. Well, that's just silly. Because of that, there's been a move towards looking at absolute deltas. Look at the absolute change. And there's some really good data, again, from um, Christian Muller, Matthias Muller, uh, looking at uh, absolute versus relative deltas. And absolute deltas seem to outperform the relatives. With the Roche troponin T assay, it seems that a change of anything more than 9.2 nanograms per litre, or because we report in whole numbers, anything more than 10, of at least 10 nanograms per litre, is a significant change. And that's probably the direction that we're going in. So we have to combine both the delta, which is the change in troponin between the two measurements, but also the absolute cutoff. So you mentioned there a patient who comes in with a initial troponin of 10 nanograms per litre on the Roche assay, and then they go to 15. Obviously 15 is above the cutoff of 14, so we would rule them in. We would keep them in hospital and say they need further testing regardless of the delta. So it's a combination of the two. One of the ones I'd be interested in your thoughts on is, let's just take that second result down a little bit. So they come in, they have their first test, it's at 10 nanograms per litre. The next test, done three hours later, is 13 nanograms per litre. Now that is more than a 20% rise, but they're still below the reference range. Now they've had two negative results, but the delta is 20%. It's more than 20%. What would you do with those? Well, so uh, th there it's really important to understand the what, what, what you might expect in terms of analytical variation. So that, that change is only three nanograms per litre. And we know that at that level that the test isn't perfect. So it could have just been the, the, the fault of the test. And you might not really have seen a rise, but it, it might just be that it looks like it. There might have been little amounts of hemolysis in the samples, differences in the way the sample was handled, for example, that could account for it. So it's probably not significant. If you're worried about it, if it's rising but below the normal range, then I think the safest thing to do is to repeat the test. This would be particularly important. For example, let's say we saw a patient with an initial troponin of four, and then it went up to 13 at three hours. Would you send that patient home and rule them out? Well, probably not, because that's a much more substantial rise of nine nanograms per litre you probably want to repeat that test again later to see if it rises above the cutoff. So all of this is coming down to the idea that we have this new test. New tests are always exciting, especially when it can help us rule out disease and help us rule out disease quicker. But we need to be smart in the way that we're using it. We need to make sure that we think about the values. People will be setting up guidelines, protocols, NICE will come out with some advice, but it's always related to the clinical context. I think that's a really important point. I mentioned in the first podcast on troponin, the specificity of the old tests was quite high, you know, it's in the 90s. So, you know, we'd see a positive result and we'd leap to the conclusion that it was an acute myocardial infarction. 
with the new tests, it's much, much less so. You can't rely on that. And I think that what it forces us to do is to think really hard about the clinical context and what's going on, and also about the results themselves, what's, what's the change between them, and how do we interpret that? Is it analytical variation? Do we need to do another sample to just make sure that this, is, this isn't rising? It's all about doing some thinking around the result and not just having a spinal reflex and reacting to negative or positive troponins as blanket rule in and rule out. And hopefully this podcast will have helped people understand a little bit the background to how we get these tests, where they come from, so they'll be able to use it in the clinical context. Now, I mentioned at my department that I was chatting to you, Rick, and some people came up with some questions that they wanted to know about troponin. Hopefully, people will also be able to write in onto the blog post. Uh, I know that you're really happy to take questions about this, and, and I'm sure there will be some. But just one or two things that people from my hospital wanted to ask you, if you don't mind. So one of the questions that somebody wanted to ask was, we're doing more and more tests at the front door when people first arrive, hoping this will speed patients through the department. We've talked about clinical context, but sometimes we're compromising that for efficiency or so-called efficiency. This means that we're going to be doing troponins on people whose pretest probability is low. What do we do with a patient where we get an incidental rise in troponin? They've come in, they've fractured their neck of femur, they had a mechanical fall. Some well-meaning person does a high sensitive troponin and it comes back not negative. What do we do now? So that's a really interesting question. And I think what's really important is that we don't overreact and call cardiology and request a whole battery of invasive investigations or treat the patient with antiplatelets, antithrombotics, because we're going to expose them to unnecessary risk. The post-test probability of a positive troponin in that patient is going to be extremely low. We've not ruled anything in. In fact, we're closer to ruling it out just because the pretest probability was so low. So if you really do think that this might have been something that you've found incidentally on the, on the troponin level that you hadn't thought about, then maybe you'll repeat it later and see what's happening to that troponin level. If it appears that that troponin is totally in context with the, in accordance with the patient's baseline condition, perhaps we know a bit about their background history and some things that we would expect to raise their troponin. For example, age. Uh, older patients are much more likely to have a, a positive troponin that's just above the cutoff. In those circumstances, we'd relax a little bit and think, well, actually, this is a troponin level that I would expect for that particular patient. The best evidence we've got for that is from Paul Collinson at St. George's, who did a fantastic study uh, looking at the reference range of uh, population from general practice. What he did is he ran the high sensitivity troponin T-test in a load of these, these apparently healthy people. He gave them questionnaires to find out if they had cardiovascular comorbidities, if they took cardiac medications. He got an echo on them all. He ran a BNP on them all. And then he developed, derived at the reference range. So remember, for the Roche troponin T, the manufacturer tells us that the 99th percentile is 14 nanograms per litre. If Paul screened out all the patients with abnormal BNP, abnormal echo, and no significant comorbidities, he found that the 99th percentile was 14 nanograms per litre, exactly what the manufacturer says. But when he included all comers, all of the patients, regardless of whether they had LV dysfunction, comorbidities, etc., the reference range went right up. The 99th percentile was more like 35, 40 nanograms per litre. And that tells us the levels that we might expect in patients who have conditions like LV dysfunction, renal impairment, cardiac risk factors. So we can use that to interpret the level that we see in an individual patient and, and determine whether it's out of context for the patient that we're treating. So again, I think what we're trying to say is, is that all of this has to be taken in context. 
I know our cardiological colleagues, they're getting slammed at the moment with all sorts of calls to them from the emergency department. And sometimes I think they must feel like troponinologists. Patient has positive troponin, ring cardiology. Patient has positive troponin, must go to CCU. But what we're trying to reiterate, and it's not just because we're trying to make friends with cardiology, we as emergency physicians have a responsibility to understand the testing we're doing and put it into the context of the patient that we're seeing. So a positive troponin doesn't necessarily mean a knee-jerk response of booking a bed on CCU and referring them to cardiology. Totally. A couple other questions, if you don't mind, Rick. So a very quick one, which I think we've sort of covered already. Why, why is it patients with stroke get a positive troponin? So the interesting thing is that that is cardiac-specific, so you're still getting myocardial damage. And there are lots of reasons why a patient with a stroke, for example, might get a myocardial injury. Vasospasm is the most likely mechanism. So Typically, for example, a patient with a subarachnoid hemorrhage, they're the, the, the classics, aren't they? You might see a patient with a sudden onset headache, photophobia, neck stiffness, you do a CT, uh, you see a subarachnoid hemorrhage, someone checks an ECG and it shows ST elevation. And the troponins will be high because concurrently with what's going on in the, in the CNS, you get vasospasm. Uh, in the uh, coronary circulation and that can lead to myocardial injury and that's the most likely mechanism for So we're talking about again stroke. myocardial injury not myocardial infarction Now we touched on ana- analyzers, analytical sensitivity earlier You described in our previous podcast these massive machines that are required to measure troponin accurately and these high sensitivity assays are even more accurate so I'm, I'm presuming this is why we don't have a point of care test Yeah, hopefully one day we will but they've not quite reached the um, requirements to be high sensitivity and they're actually quite a long way off so Rick, that's been an excellent roundup about high sensitivity troponin. We've covered why it's different to our regular troponins, how it's measured, some of the very interesting points about analytical sensitivity, how we can use it in the clinical context. I'm certain this will bring out some more questions from people listening. And please do write in to the blog post and email us if you've got any questions you'd like to ask Rick. Rick, I know that there's a nice panel that in the UK, they're the group of experts who recommend what we should be doing in the future i know you're part of that panel i'm sure we'll have you back in to talk about that and we may even do a little podcast about the draft guidance that's come out recently but for now just a big thank you from me a thank you from us all for sharing some of that expertise that you've gained over years of researching into this it's been fascinating talking to you i've learned so much and i hope our listeners have too but from now from the st emily's podcast we'll say goodbye (music) 